0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart
1: of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's webinar, the Meat Supply During the Pandemic and Beyond. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you for participating in today's program. Before we get started, let me take care of some housekeeping notes. This webinar is being recorded and will be available on our website, heritage.org in 48 hours. We really want this to be an interactive program today, hearing directly from you. So if you look at the right hand side of your screen, you'll see a question box. Please submit your questions using this question box. Then finally, all attendees are muted during the program. Now let's get to the program. I invite our panelists to join me on the screen. During the pandemic, there have been meat shortages due to a bottleneck at meat processing plants. What has been the impact of this bottleneck? And what's the current status of the meat supply? I'm very pleased that Dr. Jason Lusk has joined us to discuss these issues and more. Jason is Distinguished Professor and Head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. Jason is a prolific and widely cited economist who is extremely well-respected in the agricultural economics field, serving as past president of the Agriculture and Applied Economics Association. He wrote the books The Food Police, A Well-Fed Manifesto About the Politics of Your Plate, and Unnaturally Delicious* how science and technology are serving up superfoods to save the world. Now, that meat shortage I was talking about have drawn attention to the nation's meat supply chain. Specifically, the federal meat inspection system has been under the spotlight as a result of these shortages. Existing federal law has created major barriers to the sale of meat. It makes it difficult for some farmers to find processing facilities whose meat can be sold in interstate commerce and and even in intrastate in commerce. So, we're really fortunate to have Balin Linickin with us today to discuss these issues and other issues regarding the federal meat inspection system, along with some proposed reforms. Balin is a top food law and policy expert, and like Jason, he has the ability to convey complex ideas in a very accessible manner. Balin is an attorney, Reason.com columnist, board member of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and author of the book biting the hands that feed us. Our game plan for today will look like this. Jason Lusk will present first, followed by Balin Linekin. And then after their uh, presentations, the three of us will have a brief discussion. And then, of course, we're going to be turning to your questions. So it's now my honor to turn the program over to Dr. Jason Lusk.
0: Hi, Darren. Thanks for having me on and thanks to Heritage for hosting this session. I thought I'd start with just a kind of broad overview of some of the disruptions we've seen to the food sector and then situate the meat problem within that. So really beginning in, in middle to late March, we started to see some significant disruptions to our food sector. Those were largely demand Driven disruptions. So, we had the shutdown and essential shutdown in food away from home, restaurants, cafeteria, and then a big spike in demand at grocery stores. But again, the, the issue here was a demand driven phenomenon. How companies were able to respond to, to that depended in large part on whether they focused their markets on delivering to restaurants versus grocery stores and the ability to move food from one supply chain to the other. We, we generally worked through that in the food system fairly well within a, a matter of weeks. Uh, But really, whenever that problem subsided, really starting to be mid-April or so, uh, we saw a big supply-side shock to the meat sector. In particular, meat meat processing plants began to close down. And the worst of the situation was really late April, early May, when both beef and pork processing were running about 40% below where they had been the year prior. Uh, Fortunately, we've made strides and have now almost 100% recovered in terms of processing volumes. What we saw whenever meat processing uh, really reached the the minimum was uh, a dramatic increase in wholesale meat prices to grocery stores and to consumers. At the same time, we saw a significant drop in livestock prices. And we can talk later maybe about why that happened in terms of the economics of it. Maybe a bigger question is, why was the meat sector so vulnerable? And I think the main issue here, there's two, two factors. One is the concentrated nature, of our meat packing, uh, in good times, uh, the system works very well because these large plants have economies of scale, which means very affordable meat to consumers. Uh, but what we have is a, a handful of large plants that contribute most of our nation's meat. So just to give you some statistics on the beef side, the ten largest plants are responsible for processing about 60% of all cattle. In hogs, it's the 15 largest pork plants process about 60% of all hogs. So when any one of these plants goes down, it's big enough to have aggregate level impacts. Any of these big plants could be on a, you know, uh, f- responsible for four to five to 6% of no- national processing capacity. The other aspect of these plants is that they are very labor intensive. These big plants can have several thousand workers, three or 4,000 workers in a given location and inside the plants, they're working close uh, in close proximity to one another. Why? big refrigerated buildings are expensive and it doesn't make sense to have extra square footage that's not being utilized so workers in these facilities work in close proximity to each other and the combination of that along with refrigerated environment recirculated air is one in which apparently this pandemic could spread so i think the big questions going forward is what what can we do about it uh you know how can we address some of these challenges i'm I'm not uh gonna be naive enough to say that there are perfect answers or that we know the solution I think something that's been mentioned a lot is that we need to de-densify these plants. Maybe we need a larger number of more medium-sized packing plants. That could be. I think that's a legitimate question to have. I I will say, however, that it's not as obvious that that type of system would be more resilient to the same types of supply shocks. Why? Even medium-sized plants are going to have an incentive to have workers in close proximity to one another. Uh, And it's not obvious, I think, that a a more... um, That You might not have the same kinds of aggregate effects, even though you have a a larger number of plants being affected. Uh, The other thing that I think is going to be really important going forward is automation. You know, what can we do to reduce labor density? Because that's really why and where we've been most vulnerable in the food supply chain. And it's harder to automate. With animals because they're different sizes, shapes, colors. It's more expensive, but it's not impossible. And I think there'll be a lot of interest and effort in thinking about how we can automate and how we can make sure that we don't end up in the situation again. Fortunately, as I said, we've uh, recovered quite a bit. It doesn't mean the pa- packing plants are are uh, back to normal because workers are social distanced. They're uh, dividers between workers, They've had a hard time getting workers to show up uh, to work. So, it, you know, it's not totally back to normal, but in terms of the processing volumes, we're back closer to something that we've seen before. And fortunately, on the price side of things for consumers, prices have come started to come back down approaching something closer to, to more normal levels. So with that, I think I'll uh, turn it back over to Darren and happy to answer questions that you all have after the fact.
2: So um, I wanna thank uh, Darren and the Heritage Foundation for um, inviting me to this um, and uh, thank Jason for his uh, remarks. Um, and I'm now gonna talk about the uh, the legal and regulatory structure um, of uh, meat in this country. And I'm gonna go to my uh, first slide here. So the system of inspection that we're under is the uh, Federal Meat Inspection Act of 1906. That was amended in 1967. Uh, by the Wholesome Meat Act. And the Wholesome Meat Act uh, basically created this uh, trifurcated system. Um, It requires that any meat offered for sale in this country must be sold, uh, must be inspected. Um, And it created this system. So there's USDA inspection, which has been going on for a long time. Um, And that involves uh, having USDA inspectors on site any day that meat uh, is being, uh, animals are being slaughtered, meat's being processed. There's, and that's in about half of the states. Um, Then we have this, and that that meat can be sold anywhere uh, in the country, in any state, and across uh, international borders. And there are about 830 or so such plants around the country. Um, There's a state inspection system. About half the states uh, inspect their own meat. Um, That meat cannot be sold across state lines. Um, with a few exceptions, and those state inspectors uh, are working, you know, their state employees working in the plants. Then there's this other system, Custom Slaughter, and that system involves uh, meat that's not going to be sold. Basically, you need to own or ha- all or part of a cow, let's say, before that animal uh, has an antemortem and mortem uh, inspection. So that's the, the system that's, that we've had since the Wholesome Meat Act of 1967, um and there are some uh, food safety problems uh Jason talked about you know some of the ones that we're dealing with right now, and that's just that in, uh employees and inspectors at meat plants uh, are becoming sick, and that's uh you know caused serious challenges for their operations um, but there are longstanding problems too uh foodborne illness uh, outbreaks have happened at many of the larger plants um, and I could go into much greater detail, but uh, a couple investigations. One, Reuters reported about uh, 12 years ago now that uh, USDA inspectors had actually skipped inspections at many of these plants going on 30 years, so three decades they had not been regularly inspecting as they were supposed to, um, and there also is the case of the Rancho Feeding Corporation. Uh, they owned a uh, uh, slaughter plant, USDA inspected slaughter plant in Northern California, um, and they were processing animals that had cancer after hours, um, and that caused the recall. I think of upwards of eight or nine million pounds um, of meat, and it was you know the bad meat uh, that was cancerous, but also all the other meat that had gone through this particular plant. So, big problems there. Um, and there are some other things that are not necessarily part of the meat inspection system, but that create some perverse incentives. And so, I'd like to, since we're talking about problems with the meat supply. Uh, talk about those. The first is farm subsidies. Uh, farmers who get subsidies for a host of crops, um, mostly corn and soy. You'd think, oh, that corn and soy is going into my stomach, but it's not. It's actually uh, most of it is used as feed for livestock. And so this is a way to benefit typically the larger uh, producers and uh, and you know subsidize the the care of their and feeding of their animals. There are checkoff programs, there's the beef checkoff, you've all heard of this, You know, beef, it's what's for dinner. Um, that uh, system involves uh, beef farmers, every head of cattle, you have to pay a dollar into this USDA marketing system. Um, and this goes to my point here on the, the, the bottom of the slide, uh, which is that the USDA is promoting food and it's also regulating that same food and that's a recipe for, uh, for disaster. So we've got some solutions. Um, The Wholesome Meat Act, that uh, regulation over intrastate sales uh, or or prohibition uh, of uh, custom slaughtered animals being uh, sold commercially and uh, uh, other facets of the Wholesome Meat Act are problematic. So one way to fix this problem would simply be to repeal the Wholesome Meat Act, amended or suspended. And during COVID-19, there have been calls for that. but there's also a bill in Congress called the PRIME Act, which would do just that. It would allow uh, meats to be sold intrastate, in other words, inside state borders, um, That's been uh, that's not been inspected or that has been inspected but is processed in a custom slaughterhouse. Um, that's a great bill, and it's absolutely uh, one that I hope passes. There's also the New Markets for State-Inspected Meat and Poultry Act. Uh, that would allow interstate, so across state lines, commerce, uh, when it comes to meat that has been inspected, and uh, in, again, in about half the states, by state uh, inspectors rather than USDA inspectors. There's also state reforms which are possible. Um, one in particular is uh, in Wyoming. Uh, the state has a great law. It's called the Food Freedom Act, uh, and a recent amendment to it is allowing custom uh, people to purchase shares of custom uh, meats and that then they can purchase individual cuts of meat. It's really the first in the nation uh, to be allowed to do that, uh, thanks to this great new law, and that certainly has promise. Now, are these changes going to uh, suddenly create uh, you know, millions of new cattle or uh, trillions of new pounds of meat in our supply? Immediately, no. But the Prime Act, the um, state, uh, New Markets for State-Inspected Meat Act, those have been kicking around for a while. People have been complaining about the Wholesome Meat Act for a while. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, there were complaints as early as 1968 when the law passed that it was going to cause massive consolidation in the industry. And sure enough, you know, we're down, I think, something like 7000 processing facilities and and plants uh, since that time, since that was passed. So. In the short term, opening up new new markets uh, through the Prime Act or the New Markets Act would certainly uh, benefit farmers and consumers, ranchers, uh, by just creating new channels, new streams of commerce. And that's going to have a lasting benefit too, because it's going to allow um, farmers to plan, to to purchase more cattle, to raise more cattle. Um, and that's going to create a much more resilient food system um, and certainly a new, uh, much more resilient meat supply. And as I say here, hopefully a, a meatier future. So um, Darren, I want to uh, send it back to you.
1: Thank you, Balin. And, and Jason, you can join us on the screen. And we're, we're just going to have a, a brief discussion among the three of us, and then we'll get to um, all of your questions today. Baelum, let me ask you a question first. What is the some of the challenges that exist for farmers as it relates to this kind of this current system? Um, are there, Does it make it more difficult for a lot of farmers to get their animals processed?
2: Um, I think everyone's having challenges right now. Um so you know the Jason explained what's happening. The big plants, the smaller plants, small and mid-sized plants uh are doing gangbuster's business right now. They're they're uh, you know sometimes have reservations for uh slaughter, you know with a, a month or more uh, waiting list. So that's the challenge that farmers are facing. It's it's not so much uh that they don't have a you know, they don't have a, a place to raise animals, it's they don't have a place to get them slaughtered and they're because of the consolidation of the industry, we have fewer and fewer slaughterhouses. The facilities are huge. Um, you know, farmer Joe can't walk his cow down the street uh, to have it slaughtered. Oftentimes, he has to send it out of state to a USDA inspected uh, plant. So these are challenges that that this uh, system has created. And the COVID-19 didn't create the problems, but it is uh, exacerbating and really laying them bare. I think. I might weigh in there if I can and just,
0: uh, while I agree with what Balin said, I think it's also important to recognize the scale of the issue. Um, I'll use pork as an example, since uh, my, um, where, I, where I live now in Indiana is a bigger pork producing state. You know, our, our big processing plants here in the state might process something close to 20,000 head of hog, hogs a day, every day, every working day. So if you're a small processor and you, and you can process even 20, you know, you need to run a thousand extra days to uh, make up for the loss of that one plant, or maybe another way to say it is you need a a thousand extra small plants to make up for that loss. Um, So, you know, it's not a discouragement from thinking about how we can get more small processors, but I also think it's important to recognize just how how big these large producers are and the kinds of economies of scale they have. And I think the right question, and I think Balen pointed to it is, what can we do to reduce the barriers to entry so that new entrants um, can enter the market um, and and make sure that we don't have laws and regulations that are preventing um, entry of of new comp- competition and entrepreneurship in this space?
1: Thanks. And before I get to my next question, I just want to encourage the the audience to uh, submit your questions, and that way we can have plenty of questions in queue when it comes time to the Q and A period. So Jason, you were just talking about. Um, the regulatory barriers that exist. But there is kind of a a concern, kind of not on the the government obstacles, but trying to kind of believe that there's something problematic with the market itself. Um, so some people are wondering, wondering, and you brought this up, why cattle producers are receiving lower prices for their cattle, while at the same time consumers are paying more for beef. There's even some who alleges as evidence of price fixing. So, can you explain to us what's going on?
0: Sure. Let me talk about the basic economics first. Um, you know, what we saw is a a, a unexpected shock <laughs> that reduced processing capacity. In this case, it was you know a pandemic. Actually. Earlier in 2019, we had a, a similar shock to the processing sector, from a, but from a different unexpected supply shock that was, a, in this case, a fire that, that closed down a Tyson meatpacking plant. But when that happens, uh, you get two countervailing things that are going on. First, if you, you close down a meat plant, you can't sell as much meat. You're not p- uh, you know, producing as much meat. So there's less supply of meat on the market. So consumers, grocery stores, we're bidding, competing against each other for a smaller amount of meat, which pulls up those prices. Another way to say it is prices have to ration that scarce resource and there's less quantity available. So price has to rise to get us to cut back. So that's on the meat side. On the live animal side, you know, you, you don't need as many animals if your plant is not operating. So your demand for cattle and, and hogs falls. Uh, because you just don't have the ability to process them through. So what happens is this margin increases, the gap between wholesale prices on the one hand and cattle or hog prices on the other widens. And I think there's a lot of folks that see that widening margin and say, aha, there's got to be some market manipulation or market power. You know, I guess what I'm arguing is that that, that doesn't have to be the explanation that these under underlying economic fundamentals are going to push that margin wider. The thing you can't see in that margin are the packers' costs. And presumably, you know, no plant owner wants to burn down their plant. Uh, and also, you know, I think a lot of these, these uh, processing facilities were working very hard to try to get back up and running as quickly as they could. So, um, you know, I, it doesn't rule out the possibility there could be some market manipulation, but you don't need that to get these price spreads increasing like you did. I'll also just point out that there are several ongoing uh, pieces of, of litigation that are happening. Several cattle groups are su- suing the big meat packers at the moment. Also, the USDA and the Department of Justice are having their own separate inquiries. And you know that question, I suppose, of whether there has been market power, market manipulation is one that the courts will sort out over the coming months and years.
1: Just to follow up, Jason, Um, in in addition to the processing plant's costs, aren't there costs throughout the food supply chain, the meat supply chain, that might be kind of having an impact on the consumer prices? No doubt about
0: it. And in in fact, this margin I've referred to, you can look at it as a difference between cattle prices and wholesale prices or cattle prices and retail prices. And that that gap, that margin, farmer's share of the retail dollar, has fallen over time but a, a big explanation for that is, you know, w- the way we buy meat now is very different than we we bought it in the past. There's a lot more marketing services that come in branding, um, advertising. Um, the, the cuts come to us, you know, uh, in, you know, in a more prepared way so that we don't have to do as much uh, butchering at home. So there's a lot of extra service and processing that's being added beyond the packing plant. Uh, in the case of the meat processors during this pandemic, yes. So it costs money when your workers don't show up. It costs money when you have to install dividers. If you have to space out your workers, you're not able to run as efficiently. So all those things add extra costs to the system that that have to be picked up somewhere. Thanks.
1: So this is a question for Balin and, and for you too, Jason. Um, we talked about some reforms, the meat inspection system. Look, at, I think the the big question for a lot of people that may be concerned about reforms might be, would be food safety. Are there any food safety concerns that you would have, Balin, as it relates to um, those that proposed legislation that you discussed and um, also just getting rid of the Wholesale Meat Act, Wholesale Meat Act?
2: So uh, I think that, um, no, there aren't uh, food safety concerns. But for people who do have food safety concerns, let me uh, disavow them of the notion that they should have them. Um, first of all, the New Markets for State-Inspected Meat Act, which would allow state-inspected meat to cross uh, state borders for sale, is something that the USDA has itself uh, supported for some time, not perhaps the new markets because they're not you know, lobbying for particular laws, but they themselves have said they don't have a problem with state-inspected meat uh, being sold across state lines. After all, the inspectors are enforcing uh, regulations that are at least equal to Uh, those enforced by the USDA. And as far as the Prime Act goes, that would allow uh, uninspected meat, um, in theory, to be sold in, say, grocery stores. Um, But states absolutely have the ability to craft their own legislation to inspect uh, custom facilities if they wish. This is, you know, principles of federalism. States, as long as they're regulating meat inside their borders, then they should be allowed to do that. And I suspect that most states, um, particularly the ones that already have state inspection systems in place. Again, we're talking about, I think, 27 states total. Um, You know, they already have that framework in place, and the other states have laws around meat inspection anyways. Um, So, you know, this is, I think, a non-starter. And, you know, when we're talking about uh, foodborne illness outbreaks, they're much more likely to impact me or you or anyone else watching this uh, if they're at the big plant just, you know, uh, because that's where the meat, uh, most of the meat in this country comes from. It doesn't mean that the big plants are necessarily uh, bad in any way. Um, It's just that they sell the majority of meat. So, you know, I I don't think that the, uh, uh, you know, and I alluded to the Reuters uh, investigation where inspectors had skipped uh, inspections for 30 years. I don't think it's, uh, there's there's not a good argument food safety wise against uh, certainly the New Markets Act and the Prime Act too. And I think that we should pass them both together today.
0: I'll just weigh in there, I, you know, I mentioned economies of scale, and it, and I think it's there's a big barrier, I think, often to the smaller packers or processors entering here because it's just tough to compete on a cost basis. At the same time, I think, you know, it's important to recognize that one of those economies of scale is, you know, economies of scale and dealing with regulations. Um, if you're a big processing plant, you, you know, the requirement that we have now that you have to have a federal inspector if you want to sell across state lines. If you're a big plant, you could spread that cost over many, many more animals. And so the per per pound cost to having that regulation to you is smaller if you're a, a bigger bigger processor. And that goes, that's the same holds for any number of the food safety regulations we, we also have on the books, whether it's, you know, there's a HACCP regulation that's a food safety thing, there's bacterial testing. Again, some of those things do um, help, uh, you know, get they're they're lower on a per unit cost basis the bigger you get. So I think most consumers are concerned about safety. I don't. I don't think we have actually a lot of good evidence on uh, what would happen if we didn't have these inspectors in terms of you know actual food safety. But I think we do have to recognize that it, it does impose a barrier to entry to some of these startups. Uh, the other thing I'll just add on here too is that. Um, how do we know, uh, I mean, Baylin mentioned earlier, earlier, the kind of malfeasance of a, of a plant that was getting around the inspections, maybe putting tainted meat. So what would prevent that if we didn't have spec- inspectors? Well, one big motivation here is your brand and, and your reputation. And uh, and I think that's the kind of system that it's, it's harder for people to see, you know, and think about. But I think when you invest money in advertising your brand and promoting your product, you have a really strong incentive to make sure that you're not associated with some of those things so you know is it a perfect system no but no no system is perfect so i think i think there are trade-offs in thinking about getting rid of the inspection system we have now but i think it, you know in this current environment all options ought to be on the table and we gotta we gotta think about the costs of the kind of system we have and what a new one might look like
1: and jason if i could add something to that kind of the, the non-regulatory reasons or ways to make sure businesses are in compliance in addition to their brand and their and the public relations concerns and profitability, the big reason is liability concerns. And that's a big driver of, and a big reason why, you know, sometimes regulation is not always the answer and sometimes it's a balance of both. Um, Bailen, I, I, you know, this has been a mystery to me. If state inspected facilities meet equivalent regulatory requirements as federal inspected facilities, why in the world can they not sell the meat across state lines. Is there any explanation for that?
2: Um, I can offer some theories and maybe Jason, uh, if you know the answer, obviously weigh in, um, maybe even before I've, I've guessed, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the Wholesome Meat Act was passed in 1967. Um, it didn't immediately take effect. Um, there weren't uh, you know, these state inspection systems uh, enforcing USDA rules in 1967. That just wasn't happening. Um, and then we got, you know, this uh, federal system. And so the states opted in. I think the first state to opt in wasn't until 1971. And then over time, I think um, I want to say most the most recent state was like 2007. So we've got approximately half the states and they've gradually kind of you know gotten on board with this state inspected system. I think that it's possible that Congress, you know, just was wondering, let's take a wait and see approach. And we don't know if the states are going to, you know, be able to uh, implement these uh, equal to requirements uh, that the law, uh, you know, suggests they have to have in place. So, you know, it may have just been an overabundance of caution. Um, But I think states have, you know, because we now have 50 years of evidence that states can inspect meat inside their borders, and certainly they were you know, doing that for intrastate sales before uh, the Wholesome Meat Act. You know, I think that states have a good record. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, I think that uh, you know, if it ever was a good idea to just allow, it you know, intrastate commerce uh, with state inspected meat only, then, you know, I think the, the time for that has long since passed.
1: Okay. And uh, Jason, did you want to add
0: anything or? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any great uh, theories like uh, Balin. <laughs> I, I will just make kind of a side comment that's maybe a little out of left field, but you know, in, in agriculture, there's been a lot of hand wringing recently over other regulations that that states enact. Uh, there's a big you know uh, debate now about California and some other state have egg laws uh, on their books that basically say you can't import eggs into their states, you know, unless you meet their equivalent you know laws. And there's been a lot of hand wringing over that sort of thing about different states having different, you know, sort of regulations. Um, so this is sort of a flip side of that in some ways, I think, that, um, you know, if if you have a inspection system, the argument has been, if we have interstate commerce clause, we ought to be able to ship this stuff across state borders. And I think that same argument ought to apply in this case in some ways. Um, but I haven't seen that sort of analogy or linkage being made here.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, this kind of, at least with a custom well, the the limitation on the sale of meat just to intrastate commerce and then the prohibition on the custom slaughterhouses from um, actually the commercial sale of meat even within the state. Um, these prohibitions and the Wholesome Meat Act generally Balin, are there constitutional concerns that you uh, see?
2: So glad you asked that question. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, it is constitutionally defective. Um, so as a broader idea, it violates principles of federalism. Under the 10th Amendment, states uh, generally have the, uh, the authority and the sole authority to regulate for health, safety, welfare, and even morals inside of their borders. You know, the federal government doesn't regulate everything. And there's the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which says that the um, federal government has the authority to regulate commerce between and among the states, uh, Native American tribes, foreign countries, and no one, certainly not me. Is arguing that the federal government doesn't have the authority to regulate commerce across state lines or internationally um but what we have is uh in 1967 with the wholesome meat act congress delegated to the usda a power that i would argue that congress itself didn't even have um, which is to regulate the entire uh, wholly intrastate commerce um in meat and this is, unfortunately, uh, we can probably trace this back to a, a famous agricultural Supreme Court decision uh, during the New Deal era, Wickard v. Filburn, uh, in which a farmer who was growing wheat for sale, but also for his use at home, for feeding his uh, his livestock and whatnot, you know, the USDA told him that he was violating their program because they had set caps on how much wheat you could grow. Um, and co- and the Supreme Court said, no, uh, this is, you know, intrastate commerce, but it has and I'm oversimplifying an impact on interstate commerce and therefore it falls within the USDA's purview. Um, I think that that decision is unconstitutional um, and hence uh, the law of the Wholesome Meat Act itself is constitutionally defective and, and should be overturned.
1: Thanks. Um, what I'd like to do is encourage people to ask questions and submit them. And I think we'll go ahead and move right into the audience Q&A and you can see, On the screen right there where you can submit your questions so please do submit your questions we want this to be interactive so we do have a question uh, from one of the audience members and i'll just read it um we support the prime act in creating custom slaughterhouses to bring resiliency to the meat supply chain however we have heard there may be issues with the act concerning international trade if the u.s would allow sales of custom exempt or uninspected meat, would the U.S. also have to allow the importation of uninspected meat?
2: Can I take a stab at that? Sure. Um, no. Uh, so any meat that comes into this country has to be inspected in the country of origin, and then also it's subject to re-inspection at whichever port uh, it comes in or airport. Um, and so that's the system that's in place. Uh we're not suddenly going to allow uh, international commerce uh, when the Prime Act, all it does is allows intrastate commerce. Um, so that meat can't be sold outside of the borders of the state that it's uh, processed in. And there's no reason that it should be in interstate commerce and certainly not in uh, international commerce. So I think there's, you know, uh, and, and you know, you can put a label on it that says not for interstate uh, or international shipment or sale, for example. Um, and that would certainly hit off any potential concerns, I would think.
1: I think there's a concern about like violating WTO obligations. Um, but, you know, the, the, the issue, though, is the custom exempt law would – and by the way, I, I think that concern is – and that question is really good. Um, the custom exempt is still limited to interstate sales there's still going to be the same requirements um, for interstate commerce where you would have to have the inspection. So, you know, when you're talking about state inspected facilities and federal inspected facilities, we would be asking the um, importers to be meeting those requirements. Um, so the custom example would be fairly uh, narrow and only within intra state commerce. So I, I, I doubt that there would be any type of WTO concerns. It's not a, an issue that's not worth bringing up. But my guess is because of how narrow that um, issue is, um, it likely wouldn't be a concern. But, you know, that's something that would obviously need to be examined further. I don't think ultimately, though, it's a, it's a big enough concern to create any obstacle to try to move um, reforms at this point. Here's a, another question. Um, how does U.S. Meat packing during COVID compare to other countries? What are other countries doing well that we are not doing?
0: So I'll I'll kind of weigh in you know, here a little bit, and I don't claim to be an expert on every other country's uh, meat packing. I think there initially was this view that somehow the U.S. packing sector was unique and different. But I think what we've seen is actually several stories emerging in different countries, whether it's Germany or Brazil, of similar kinds of packing plants. Look, this you know, this is a virus. It doesn't care your nationality or what your regulations are. If you if you have a lot of people in close proximity to one another, um, and one of them is infected, it's going to spread. and um, and so, you know, one thing that may have happened depending on timing of issues is, you know, what was the knowledge base that we, we have to prevent the spread of disease? You know, it, we, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback here, but, you know, we were being told for a while, you know, you shouldn't be, we, we don't need to wear masks. So, you know, packing plants, follow those rules. Um, and then we had new, new rules come on. The problem, you know, the issue is that, that these are real time events that happen. Now, what one, thing that I think is interesting, even within the United States, is poultry wasn't nearly as affected as beef and pork. So uh, during the past, you know, three, four month time period, poultry production has never been more than or less than 6% above or below where it was uh, last year. So what is it that even within our same country that's different about poultry processing than beef and pork? I don't necessarily claim to have the answer to that, um, you know, I suspect one of the issues here is related to labor density. Uh, there is more automation in poultry processing. Animals are more uniform. Um, you know, most of the labor in these packing plants are involved in what you might call disassembly, further breaking down a carcass so that, you know, cows, cattle are just bigger than chickens. So you just don't need quite as much labor to do that that decomposition uh, at the end of the plant. But that's a conjecture. I wouldn't say that's proof. And I, I would, I'm really interested to see what would happen i should also say you know parenthetically that you know it's not as if meat processing alone has been impacted there are lots of stories of other food processing facilities Frito-Lay plants for example having to close down because of this pandemic um, ha- have the has it been as big it had its aggregate effects i don't know one of the challenges is one of the reasons we know of the problems with meat packing is we have such good data the usda puts out daily data on processing volumes it's done it for decades so we know that's a problem because we can see it and it's happening um you know would we even know if we had you know most of our potato chip processing capacity you know cut down i don't don't know that we would even know that to be the case but we know at least you know through some of the media stories that there have been other food processing facilities that have been adversely impacted although i would say probably
1: not to the extent we've seen in meatpacking. thanks and uh again once again if you have questions please um submit the questions in the question box. We have a question here. In the late 19, uh the late 90s and early 2000s, there was considerable amount of interest in more niche marketing processing plants, even reinvestment by family-owned processing centers. To date, the capital investment is too large. Most of the time, the capital needs are due to the regulations. How do you resolve that situation?
0: So I'll, I'll weigh in here just you know a little bit and say I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think I've mentioned earlier. We know the regulation is part of that cost and part of those economies of scale. Is it 10% or 90%? I don't know the answer to that, but it is a factor. Um, you know, I think there was a question that you know came up earlier that mentioned the word resiliency. I think this is really important here. You know, when I think about resiliency, it's not just the number of packing plants. Really, what the problem was when we had the, the reductions in uh, you know workers was a problem of capacity like we didn't have excess capacity in the system so if you brought on more you know extra plants that would add more capacity so that if one of them shut down due to a fire or a pandemic you could shift those cattle and hogs to a new plant the problem is excess capacity is really expensive you know these plants as a as a question mentioned cost millions of dollars to build uh, and if you're going to build that kind of plant you need to make sure it's running close to full capacity. Um, And I think that's one of my concerns a little bit. If we had a lot of extra investment and and you end up with a system with a lot of excess capacity, that could be good from a vulnerability standpoint because, you know, there's some wiggle room in the system. The downside is super hard to be profitable if you're not running close to full full capacity because you're not able to spread those costs out over nearly uh, as many animals. But I think, you know, that being said, I think there's a lot of interest at the moment and trying to build some more capacity and, and trying to, to build some. And I think the the way you do that is if you can't compete on economies of scale, I think as a question mentioned, you got to compete on quality or some other dimension uh, to attract consumers who want something a little different out of their meat processing sector. And if you can, you know, even if you have a slightly higher costs, if you, if you can deliver some extra value to the consumer, that's an economic proposition.
2: Um, I, th- I just wanted to weigh in, and this is more anecdotal than, uh, you know, actual. Uh, rigid data so you know take it uh, with a grain of salt. but I've spoken to uh, some people who've tried to open up uh, USDA inspected plants uh, in the last let's say five years um, and they've found either that the USDA has some minor quibbles with their plan or the sense they got was that the USDA didn't want to because they've had trouble uh, hiring and retaining inspectors. Uh, they didn't want to have to send inspectors to get another plant because, you know, you get these roving inspectors who might be at one plant for two hours and then drive an hour and go to the next plant for a couple hours and whatnot. I mean, I guess during COVID, that's a bad idea um, just because you're allowing an inspector to potentially to be a, a vector. Um, but, you know, it's if the FDA is unwilling to allow uh, new plants to open, which is the sense I get. But again, that's anecdotal. Um then, you know, that's a problem. That's obviously an agency that's trying to uh, or not trying to kind of open up the supply uh, to meet demand.
1: Thanks. Uh, Another question. How do the politics slash partisanship of the issues surrounding meat processing shake out? Uh, Divide by party lines, geographic lines, states that rely on livestock, raising processing versus states that don't um, necessarily, environmental concerns, et cetera.
2: Uh, you want me to take that?
1: Sure. Okay.
2: Um, so uh, it's uh, it's amazing how during you know the course of my decade plus working in food policy, um, the thing that really has drawn me to it is that it's not a partisan thing. It's not like the Republicans are doing this great and the Democrats are doing that terribly or vice versa. Um, it's a nonpartisan thing. And so, for example, the PRIME Act um, it, it's two sponsors are, uh, representative Pingree from Maine, uh, who's a farmer, organic farmer and has been since the 1970s. Um, and representative Massey from Kentucky, uh, a Republican, and he's a grass fed beef farmer. So that, you know, it's, you find these sorts of things. And, and I think in the Senate, similarly, you have, you know, Rand Paul and, um, Angus King, uh, as, you know, sponsors, I think that all of these issues are things that should appeal to People, regardless of ideology, if you like to eat meats, if you care about small farmers, those aren't partisan issues. And you know, I think that the the fact that there are so many sponsors from both parties of these two bills, um, and you have found, uh, you know, you've, I've I've seen over the last couple of weeks members of Congress writing to Secretary Purdue, urging him to implement some reforms, and they've been you know multi multi party uh, at least bipartisan letters and i think you know that's that's so unusual uh in this day and age that really we should you know applaud and take note
0: i it's i agree question. with yeah. with Bailin on that yeah. but i will mention maybe another dimension that's sort of lurking in the background and and that is you know there are you know groups that wish uh the meat we ate a lot less meat uh, and our livestock sectors were much smaller and those tend to be associated with, you know, environmental and some health groups. And those tend to be much more partisan. A lot of those are, you know, related to issues associated with climate change and, and other things to that nature. But I just mentioned that to say that, even though I didn't have anything necessarily to do with these particular policies, as I've seen calls for changes in these sectors, you um, you know it, it, you see people making you know calls to make changes that would make the sector a lot smaller based on a pre you know a prior commitment to to wanting there to be less livestock and less meat consumption
1: good point uh can so a question can you comment on the impact of the white house executive order on the meat industry did it hurt or help and how so i
0: i'll uh let you know, Balin speak to the legal aspect of it, because I don't know that I fully understand the consequences there. <laughs> but what, what I, what I can say just on kind of the ground level is certainly provided a lot of motivation, um, you know, among packing plant owners and workers to try to get back up and running. And it, and it gave them, you know, I, I don't know that cover is the right word, but it gave them, um, you know, an incentive to try to, you know, get workers back in the plants they were deemed essential to get back up and running. You know, so I think even aside from whatever the, you know, legally it, it enabled them to do, I think uh, it certainly provided an environment in which there was a lot of pressure to get back up and running uh, as quickly as possible. And I, and I was on a number of calls where, you know, that involved state, local, federal, you know, regulators and officials trying uh, to, to get these plants back up and running as quickly as possible.
2: It's, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone understands the um, liability element of the executive order, which I think is kind of the the thing that most people have said that it did, um, and I I certainly can't claim to understand it. Um, so, but I, I I agree with Jason, and I think that um, I'm not necessarily in favor of the uh, president ordering uh, businesses to stay open when they have workers who and you know USDA inspectors in them uh, who might get sick or die. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm I'm not uh, in favor of the rule or of the order inherently, um, but it seems like perhaps it's uh, it has addressed some, you know, shortfalls in the in the supply.
1: I should clarify, you know, the so I'll briefly weigh in on the executive order. The, the executive order itself doesn't actually directly mandate the facilities to be open. It does pass on some powers to the USDA secretary. Who then might be able to use some of the authority um, to, to eventually lead to that, but that never was done. So I think it's important to kind of dispel that myth. And actually there's something um, that I wrote about dispelling some of the myths regarding that executive order that are important. And um, we've got, let's just do one more question quickly. Um, how can we take a strategic approach in increasing technology and processing and making that tech more accessible to small packers, or even ranchers themselves to have on-site facilities if they're capable.
0: Uh, well, I'm a biased source here as somebody that works for a public university, so I'm going to say more investment in public research. Um, but, uh, um, but seriously, I think you know that is a mechanism that we've used you know throughout food and agriculture in the past to try to innovate, and the returns on those investments seem to be not seem to be the empirical. Uh, research su- suggests that they can be fairly large. There have been, you know, uh, various forms of, of innovation on this front. For example, trying to get around some of these regulatory problems in the past by having these kind of mobile slaughterhouses or avatars that you know meet some state or federal guidelines, but they can move from facility to facility. I don't know how popular those have been, but those have been some of the things that I've seen people try to use in the past. And I think, uh, you know, the, the more creativity and entrepreneurship we can bring to this, the better.
1: Thank you. I I want to thank all of you again for participating in today's program and asking such great questions. I also want to thank Jason and Balin for sharing their expertise today with us. There are also many people behind the scenes at the Heritage Foundation who make our webinars possible. And I want to especially thank Ellie Krasny and Adam Brickley for all their help. If you look at the slide on the screen, you'll see more information on our panelists and how you can learn more. Once again, this webinar has been recorded, and will be on the Heritage website, heritage.org, in 48 hours. Also, please be on the lookout for future Heritage webinars on heritage.org. Please stay safe, and I look forward to seeing you soon in person. Thank you.